As I mentioned earlier, uh, before we started the service, you can see the some of the bio information of uh, Pastor Mike in, on, in your bulletin on page 11. Um, I just want to share one story. Some of you heard this or, or read this in my email to you on Friday, and those of you that were at the men's street, you're gonna you're gonna hear it again too. I'm sorry about that, but uh, just a story of how. Uh, interesting of a connection uh, Pastor Mike has with our church here, Trinity Presbyterian. In the early to mid-1980s, Mike was looking for his next call, and in a roundabout way, he got connected with the search committee here at Trinity that was looking for the next pastor. And uh, they began to discuss about the possibility of him coming here to be the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church, and the Lord closed that door. And as a result of that door being closed, the Lord sent Mike to Indiana to a little town called Richmond to plant a PCA church in Richmond, Indiana, which happens to be the hometown of Stephanie and myself. And through the ministry of that church, the Lord brought both Stephanie and I to faith in Christ. And we were discipled through that church. And I was prepared to go to seminary in that church and the beginning steps of ministry in the future. So I don't know whether it's correct or not, but the way I look at it is that the Lord closed the door for Pastor Mike to come here so that he would go to Richmond such that the Lord would use his ministry there to bring us to faith in Christ, prepare us for ministry, go to seminary, and eventually come here to be the pastor. So we're very thankful to have him here this week. And uh, you, are, uh, you are going to be blessed by the word of God being preached to you. So, Mike, please come and preach God's word. Thanks, Chris. I said um, to the folks at the early service, it's not often that you're appreciated for something you didn't do. Um, but in God's providence, we didn't come to Rochester. Um, but I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to be here this morning and um, grateful to have been with the men uh, Friday night and, and Saturday. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful that we were able to take a peek at Psalm 103, which was uh, some of which was the text for our, our time together um, at the men's retreat um, as we looked at some of these benefits that uh, David enumerates and for which he blesses God and thanks God. And we looked particularly at the first three. Um, who forgives, God who forgives all your iniquities, all your iniquities, removes them as far as the east is from the west, who heals all of your diseases, this, this great promise from Psalm 103 that, that as you work your way through the rest of the scripture and into the New Testament, you understand becomes this promise really of cosmic renewal. The, the, the total restoration of our broken down lives, the total renewal of our broken down lives, but not only our lives, the renewal of the whole cosmos and the emergence of a new heaven and a new earth, uh, all done by and through Jesus for the people whom he's loved from before the foundation of the world. And then, and then we're people delivered, delivered from the pit, which is a, a multi-layered, multi-faceted concept in, uh, in, in the scriptures. These, these are just some of the, the great gifts and blessings 
that Christ has secured for us, and and they're all rooted, grounded in in this great love and mercy and compassion which God has for His people. These these three words that appear in Psalm 103, and then uh, and then appear again in Ephesians chapter 2, which is why I wanted for us to look at Ephesians chapter 2, to think a little bit uh, about this love of God, this mercy of God that is manifest in His, his grace to us uh, in Jesus Christ. And, and so look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 as we're reminded of who we were so that we might be reminded of who we are and so that we might understand why God has done this. Those are the, the three pegs, if you will, to, to hang this passage on. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this portion of your word. Uh, we, we thank you that you've not left us to figure out who we are and figure out this world in which we live, but you've revealed yourself and you've, you've disclosed to us who we are and who, who you would have us be and, and how we would live in this world and the hope that you give us and, and a whole host of other things. Thank you that your word makes all of this known to us. Having made yourself known to us in your word, we know that we need your spirit uh, so that we might see these things and apprehend these things and, and revel in these things and take these things into our hearts. And so grant your spirit now that, that we might behold uh, these wonderful things in this portion of your word. We ask, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Some of you um, will remember the book uh, by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. For some reason, um, I was introduced to that book as a, as a young Christian. I don't remember who suggested it. I don't suggest, remember why it was suggested, it suggested, but I do remember reading it. But the only thing I remember from the book is the importance of remembering names. Because when you remember names, you honor them. Um, you affirm their dignity as human beings. Um, and that's the only thing I remember from the book. But through the years, I've thought about the book. And, and I've thought numerous times that what Paul writes here in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, is not calculated to win many friends or influence many people. 
His characterization of who we are apart from Christ is not pleasant. It's not a pleasant thing to read. The profile of a person apart from Christ is hardly flattering. And why would he bring that up? Why, after this this glorious first chapter in which he enumerates, outlines this great salvation that God has secured for us through Jesus Christ, and after this beautiful prayer in, in verses 14 and following, and then, and then the culmination of that prayer, this, this affirmation that the power, the very power that has raised Jesus from the dead is the very same power that is directed toward these Ephesians, is directed toward you and me. Why, after all of that, would he, would he raise this matter of who we are apart from Christ? And I think the simple answer is it's there to remind us. It's there to remind us who we were so that Paul could then remind us who we are. And this is who we were. We had a problem. The Ephesians had a problem. Uh, We had an enormous and complex problem. And let me suggest to you that you measure the enormity of a problem, the seriousness, the severity of a problem, by what it takes to fix it. And what did it take to fix your problem, the Ephesians' problem, my problem, Chris's problem? It took nothing less than the God of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of all things, the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God. It took nothing less than the second person of the Godhead coming into this world, taking a nature exactly like yours, bearing your sin on the cross, being buried, and then being raised from death to newness of life. Your condition is so serious that only God could fix it. You can't fix it. You couldn't fix it. It took God to do what you couldn't do. You can't, he can, and he did. And Paul reminds us that in our natural state, we're, we're dead, lifeless. Sinners are dead. That's what he says in verse 1. You were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins. So what's a trespass? I live in, in West Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee. There, there are lots of people who hunt in West Tennessee, and they hunt in Arkansas, and they hunt in northern Mississippi and southern Missouri. And a lot of these guys have, have or are parts of hunting camps. And, and in their hunting camps, there are signs that are posted all around the acreage of their hunting camps that say, no trespassing. This is ours. This belongs to us. You want to hunt, go someplace else. What does that sign tell you? Well, it's a warning, right? It's It's a warning that there is a line here that is not to be crossed. And if you cross that line, there's a penalty. There's a there's a price to be paid. I've done, as you can well imagine, plenty of funerals across the years and and typically in our service of worship, in our funeral service, 
we include the Lord's Prayer when we pray the Lord's Prayer. And it's always interesting to do that in a mixed group because you can immediately tell who the Episcopalians are and who the Roman Catholics are because they're trespassers. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But we're Presbyterians. We're, we're debtors, right? We have an obligation to resolve this problem of a debt. Why? Because we have trespassed. Trespassers incur a debt, and those who have that debt have been trespassers. We're all in the same boat, whether we're trespassers or debtors, because we've broken the law. We've failed to do those things we ought to have done, and we've done those things which we should not have done. Trespasses are those acts of law-breaking that incur a debt. And what about sins? Well, Sin really is actually a bigger term. It's a more comprehensive term. Sin, as our catechism teaches us, is any want, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any offense against God, whether in thought or word or deed. Jesus makes this very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He drills more deeply than the Pharisees wanted to drill because they saw sin as simply matters of external failure. But Jesus drills down into our hearts. Sin includes things like envy, jealousy, covetousness, harboring resentment, refusing forgiveness to one who has wronged you but who has sought that forgiveness. It's only a three-letter word, but it's a big, big, all-inclusive word. In the scriptures, and where does it lead? It always leads to death. Sin, my friends, is not your friend. It always leads to death. And let me remind you that it doesn't take much, right? It took one violation of the law, one act of covetousness on the part of Adam and complicit with his wife Eve, one premeditated transgression to plunge the entire human race into a condition of misery and brokenness and disorder and internal and external chaos and deep, deep sadness. That's what Paul says about us. Sinners, transgressors who live in this world of death. But notice something. Notice a couple of things, actually. And this is really very striking. While dead, Paul suggests that we were very much alive. That our death was actually a living death. Look again at verses 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I'm not much of a a TV guy, but I understand that there's this series out there, Netflix or Hulu or somebody, this series out there called Walking Dead, right? And that's what we were. We were walking dead. This, This death in sin and transgression is very much active. And another thing, the second thing that's striking about this is that these people who are living this living death 
actually think that they are alive, that they are independent, that they are captains of their own destinies, but they're actually followers. Did you see that? We were followers of the course of this world, imprisoned by the powers of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience who is at work in the sons of disobedience. And then there's this. It's interesting that Paul shifts personal pronouns from a you to a we. He includes himself in this. You need to know that about pastors. This is actually a great relief. I don't have to pretend to be something other than what I really am, a sinner saved by grace. Paul includes himself in this. And I want to say to you, you need pastors like that. You don't, you don't need a pastor who just says you. You need a pastor who says we. Someone who knows that he needs the Jesus that he's telling you that you need each week. And I know you have a pastor like that. And I'm grateful for it. This is who we were. We weren't free We weren't alive. We were imprisoned, imprisoned in sin and death. We were in bondage, held captive to the world, held captive to the devil who roams around seeking whom he may devour. And what's the evidence of this? Paul enumerates some of the elements some of the evidence of what this living death is. It's a a kind of stench that emanates From those who are dead in trespass and sin, they reek of the passions of the flesh. Chapters 4 and 5, Paul mentions hard-heartedness, callousness, greed, sensuality, every kind of impurity, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. This is what spiritual death looks like. So far from being inanimate and harmless... It is very active and very destructive and leads to more death. It can be polite. It can be prettied up. It can be dressed up. I love where I live, but I have to tell you, we're really good at this in the South. We're really good at politeness and niceness, forgetting that what we need is newness. We need newness. One of my all-time favorite movies is the 1979 version of Dracula with Frank Langella and Laurence Olivier. It's a, it's a great film. Abraham, or, uh, Olivier's character, Abraham von Helsing, is summoned to his daughter Mina's side. She has become desperately sick, deathly ill. And what Van Helsing learns is that her life has been taken. It's been infected. It's been poisoned by Count Dracula. Dracula needs her blood. And the result is that she dies, only she isn't really dead. There's this fascinating scene around a dinner table where those at the dinner table, including Dracula, discuss this this phrase. She is Nosferatu, Nosferatu, which means undead, dead, but undead, still living. 
And this becomes clear when Van Helsing travels to the underworld and encounters his undead daughter. And in a scene that is terrifying and haunting, Mina with fire red eyes and, and blanched, colorless, death white skin and blood red lips attacks her father because she, because she needs blood, needs blood, his blood in order to survive. And he knows, the father knows, that the only thing that will free her from this living death is another death. He knows that the only thing that will save her is a wooden stake through her heart. And he, the father, has the body exhumed and he takes the stake and he takes the hammer and he drives the stake through the heart of his beloved child. That's what you need or needed. You needed a death in order to be set free from a living death. Only the stake wasn't driven through your heart. It didn't pierce your heart. The stake wasn't driven through your body. The stake was driven through the body of Jesus, through the heart of Jesus. Only it wasn't a stake. It was a Roman spear accompanied by nails. It was the nails of crucifixion that have set you free from your living death. But you needed more simply than a death. You needed a resurrection. You needed to be brought from death to life. And that's exactly what has happened to you. Nothing less than a resurrection from the dead could free you and save you. And that's what Paul says has happened to you. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Him. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. You see why Paul is reminding them who they were because he wants them to understand who they are, who they have become by his grace. And now you see the connection that there is to the end of chapter 1 and this passage in chapter 2. Paul wants them to see that the very same thing that was done in the life of Jesus, bringing him from death to newness of life through resurrection has happened for them. Everything that is true of him touching his humanity is now true of them. Raised from death to life, made alive, ascended with him, seated at his right hand, in glory, ruling and reigning with Jesus at the Father's right hand. That's what has happened to you. And, and, and how does this happen? How does it happen that you've been made alive? It happens because of his love and his mercy and his grace. All three of those terms are here. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. By grace you have been saved. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about the, the relationship among those three terms. They're not synonyms. Sometimes we use mercy and grace interchangeably or love and mercy interchangeably. But there are nuances, really important nuances of difference. Paul says in God's great mercy, in his superabounding mercy, in his limitless mercy, he has raised us up. What is mercy? Well, mercy, mercy is compassion. It's pity. The same word that you find in Ephesians chapter 2, you find in Matthew chapter 9, at the end of the chapter, when Jesus looks at the crowds and, and he sees the crowds, he sees them as sheep who are harassed and helpless. One translator has rendered it flayed and fleeced as those who have been assaulted by a wild beast whose flesh has been ripped and torn, fleeced and flayed. And Jesus looks at the crowds. What does he feel for them? He feels compassion. He feels pity. He feels mercy. Same word is used in Mark chapter 1, verses 41 and following. When a leper comes to Jesus... And you know enough about lepers to know that they weren't welcomed in a place like this. In, in fact, they were re required to stay away from places like this. They couldn't go to church. They couldn't come into the village common market. They had to stay excluded, removed from those who were healthy. But this leper rushes into a place he has no business being because he knows that Jesus can do something for him or believes that he can. And he cries out for Jesus to have mercy upon him. Him. And Jesus looks at him, and what does he see? He sees one in deep distress, one in desperate need, and he feels compassion for him. Pity, compassion, mercy, right? We experience this. I remember decades ago watching ads, and I don't remember whose ads they were exactly, but they were fundraising ads seeking to raise money to provide for children in Ethiopia who were being affected by famine. And, and you'd see these, these young children with these weepy eyes and these distended bellies and these frail extremities. And what did you feel? You felt pity. You felt compassion for them. You've probably felt it recently as you've watched news clips of the devastation in Fort Myers, people who are left homeless, with no place to go. You've, you've probably felt it when you've seen uh, news releases from the Ukraine, the flood of refugees, the destitution that people are experiencing. What do you feel? You feel pity. B.B. Warfield, um, who was mentioned during Sunday school, B.B. Um, Warfield wrote an article entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord, and in it he argues that the most often mentioned emotion seen in Jesus in the Gospels is compassion. More than any other emotion, it is compassion that you see in the heart of Jesus. And notice where this compassion originates. It originates in the love of God. This compassion of Jesus that, that we see so frequently, the soil out of which that mercy, that compassion grows, is the love of God. 
God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. And how great is this love, this, this love that is the soil out of which mercy grows? It's as great as His mercy. It's as limitless as His mercy. It's as immeasurable as His mercy. You, you, you pity the Ukrainians. You feel some compassion for starving children. But you don't love them. You don't love them. What happens to mercy when mercy is the fruit of love? When our oldest daughter was 11 years old, she had sinus surgery. She had a congenital defect in her sinuses, and she had to have one of those sinus cavities opened up. A little hole had to be bored between a couple of those cavities so that this thing would drain. She had sinus infections all the time. She had discoloration under her eyes. So we went to a professional, someone who could do for her what she couldn't do for herself. Someone who could do for her what I couldn't do for her, what her mother couldn't do for her. And she had this surgery. And and after the surgery, she's in the recovery room. And she came out from under the anesthesia, 11 years old. She's, she's afraid. She's terrified. She hurts. She's crying. She has, she has packing stuffed up into her face to stanch the bleeding. She has tubes in her arms, and she's trying to rip these tubes out. She was terrified. And I was in the room with her. And what did I feel? Compassion. Compassion. Why did I feel compassion? Why was my heart breaking as I watched my 11-year-old daughter, because I loved her. And how long had I loved her? I I remember so vividly the night Barb, my wife, took my hand. Katie, our firstborn, was moving around in her tummy. And she took my hand and put my hand on her stomach. And I felt my daughter's kick for the first time. I still feel it. I can feel it in the palm of my hand. I loved my daughter even then. And I loved my daughter before then. I loved my daughter from the moment I knew she was coming. Let me ask you a question. How long have you been loved by your Heavenly Father? Paul has told you. Paul told you in that first chapter that you have been loved by your heavenly father from before the foundation of the world. You have been loved with a never fading, never dying, infinite love, the same love with which he loves his own eternally begotten son. And what does he feel when he sees you in your distress? What does the God of heaven and earth see and feel when he sees sinners in their distress, dead in their trespasses, living this living death? What does he feel? He feels compassion. One translator has translated this phrase. When he sees us in our helpless condition, his whole inner being moves and burns. He feels compassion because of his love. 
But then there's this. Compassion is empty if it doesn't act. If it doesn't do something. Right? When my daughter's illness, if you will, when her problem was disclosed, you know what I wanted to do because I love my daughter? I wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to learn how to do sinus surgery. Why? Because there's nobody on the planet who loves my daughter more than her mother and I. But that was impossible. So as I said earlier, we went to somebody who could do something, who could do something for her that she couldn't do for herself, something that her mother and I could not do for you. That is what God has done because he has loved you, because that mercy manifests itself, in, because that love manifests itself in mercy. He has acted in grace to save you. That's what grace is, folks. Grace is mercy rooted in love, acting, acting to deliver from distress the one who is the object of that great affection. And that's what God has done for you. Grace and mercy are rooted in this deep and unending love. I love this quotation by Gerhardus Voss. It's from a sermon he preached on Jeremiah 31.3. Jeremiah 31.3 says, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And this is what Voss says in his comment. In the unlimitable round of his timeless existence, we have never been absent from nor uncared for by him. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. There has never been a time in the space of all eternity, across the span of all eternity, there has never been a time when you have been absent from him or uncared for by him. Never a time when you have not been loved by him. And do you know what? The best is yet to come. Why does God do this? Why, why does God remind us who we were so that he can remind us who we are? So that he can point us in the direction of what is coming. That's what Paul says in verse 7. Why does he give us his son? In his death, his cross, his grave, his resurrection, his ascension. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine bathing in without mitigation, without interruption, bathing in the infinite love of God? Can you imagine having all doubts removed, all your fears assuaged, all of your 
brokenness restored. Nothing but the pure and perfect delight of loving and being loved by such a loving, merciful, and gracious God. That is what is coming for you and for me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Yet again, um, thank you for the opportunity to reflect upon these things. To, to think your thoughts after you. Uh, Lord, would you take these thoughts, these truths, would you drill them deep into the hearts of these folks? And I, I pray that if there is someone in this room who has yet to taste and see that you are supremely good, that you, by your Spirit, would soften that heart and even break that heart and incline that person to seek after Jesus, who is love and mercy and grace incarnate. Hear our prayers. We make them in Jesus' name. Amen.